All right. Well, today we are continuing in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in chapter 25. And uh, just as a reminder, uh, Matthew chapter 24 was all about the second coming. Jesus is talking about the signs that will accompany his second coming. And just as a reminder, uh, starting mid-August, when we do the Thursday Bible study, we're going to go through and, and kind of go through that chapter a little bit more carefully, more uh, more slowly, kind of going through the, the topics that he brings up in that chapter. But for now, we're moving through chapter 25, and 25 is kind of a follow-up, obviously, to 24, and more than just a numerical sequence. He follows up the signs of his second coming with kind of the attitude that we're to have while we await his return. And the first parable in chapter 25 we looked at two weeks ago is the parable of the ten virgins where he talks about being ready and having a sense of readiness. And today we're continuing with the second parable he talks about in that chapter, which is a very, very well-known one. I'm sure many of you have heard before and preached on in different ways and different angles to it, which is the parable of the talents. So let's read through it and then we will talk about uh, its application. So Matthew 25 starts like uh, verses 14. The parable begins like this. Again, it, speaking about the kingdom of God and the second coming. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who received one talent came. Master, he said, I know you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even that, which he, even that he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Several years ago, when I was uh, pastoring in Oregon, we gave everyone in the church, I think it was $10, it might have been 5 I can't exactly remember, but we gave them 
let's just say 10 for the sake of, of the story, when they walked into the service. And I spoke on this passage. And what I wanted everyone to do when they came in, I wanted them to take this money that we had given them as a church, which was a surprise to them. You know, people always think, ah, the church is always after my money. So to have the church give them, it was like, whoa, what's going on here? And we told them what we wanted them to do was to take the money that had been given to them and to invest it into the, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then in a month, come back and report on how they had invested this money into the kingdom's work. Now, this wasn't my original idea, by the way. It was, uh, it was one that I had heard, but I thought it would be kind of fun to do. By the way, I, I brought up doing this in Germany one time, and uh, I was told that the German tax laws and finance laws would not allow us to do something like this, <laughs> which I thought, come on, but it's probably right. But the response was interesting. First of all, someone wanted to know, wanted to know exactly what I meant by investing in the kingdom of God. Did I expect them to come back with five times the amount? You know, some kind of had this idea, is this a money-making scheme for the church? Others wanted to know if investment could take a different form, like could a person invest into, say, another person uh, or a cause which wouldn't necessarily bring back financial gain. And I told them, just interpret it however you want to interpret it, but invest in this money in the kingdom of God, and in a month, come back and tell us what happened. So some of them, like the youth group, they pulled their money together, and they got uh, the supplies to do a car wash which is a very common fundraising thing in the U.S. Again, not something you can do here, but uh, they invested their money to do a car wash, and they actually brought back uh, a greater, greater amount that had been given to them, that money we just put into the youth program. One lady, an older lady, used the money to buy material to sew together some handbags, uh, which she sold, and so she had a lot of fun making these handbags and then selling them, and so she actually increased the money quite a bit. Probably as an individual person, she probably increased it the most. Some used uh, the funds to invest in something they thought was important, like there were some kids who were uh, economically disadvantaged, and they used it to buy school supplies for the kids, so you didn't see a, a return in finance, but it was a, a, generous, a generosity given out. But what I found interesting were the people that, like, one guy just gave me back the money immediately. Uh, as, we handed, as he was leaving, he just gave it back, and he says, I don't have time for this. <laughs> And I, and I said, well, why don't you, you know, let your kids come up with an idea? Because we, we had included the kids. He's just like, nope. Uh, one person, uh, uh, several people, after the, as, as the month was going on, some people were get already talking about kind of with excitement what their plan was. But, but at least half of the folks were kind of just struggling with a guilty conscience, you know, because they, they, they didn't know what to do. They didn't really want to think ahead. They didn't have any idea what to do with this. One guy who was probably one of my closest friends in the congregation, we were having lunch and he told me with a guilty conscience that he was just going to give 50 bucks to the church when this was all over with because he couldn't come up with something and he didn't have time for it either. And I, and I told him, and he, and he did the 50 because that was five times, so he felt like he'd be at least in the category, the guy that increased it by five. And I said, you know, I don't know if you realize it, but a talent is worth about a million and a half dollars. And so the servants in this story just didn't have the opportunity to go, well, the master's coming, I'm going to give him five times and feel good. And he said, you know what, if you gave me a million and a half dollars, then I'd quit my job and I would invest it. You know, I'd, I'd do this better. So he kind of came across with this, this kind of response to that. But it was an interesting idea. It was interesting to see how people responded to this responsibility that was given to them. 
And this parable is one of the most preached on in Christian history because it's one of the easiest to apply, especially the first half of it. It's easy to apply. It's a fortuitous coincidence that in the Greek, this, this uh, amount of money, which is actually a weight of money, so it kind of depends if it's a talent of gold or a talent of silver, how much it's worth. But the word in Greek is talenton or talenta. So it's easy to just kind of roll that over into English, into this idea of the talents, which can mean anything from financial resources to uh, skill resources to spiritual gifted resources. You know, it makes it a very applicable uh, parable, particularly in English. And in the context that we've already talked about, Jesus is, Jesus is speaking about the, com- the return of the king, his return, and what, how we should live in that time of the return. As I've already said, the first parable he tells is a parable of readiness. He's just basically just be ready. This parable is a parable of what we do in that time of readiness, which is to invest our resources into the kingdom of God. And that's the context in which Jesus places this parable. He's telling his followers how they should live in that time between the end of his earthly ministry and in his return, which is our time. Sometimes you hear these folks talk about dispensationalism. And, this, and, and, folks, and dispensationalism means that there's like kind of God deals with humanity in a different way at different times in history. And this is considered the church age, the dispensation of the church, or sometimes called the dispensation of grace. This is the time where we relate to God through Jesus Christ as we prepare for his return. So then, how are we to do this? How are we to live while waiting for the return of Christ? And I've already told you this. We're to live using our resources to invest in the kingdom of God and to grow the kingdom of God. It's pretty simple. It's not, it's not a difficult concept to get your head around. However, it's a concept which brings up questions that people have. And one of the questions that is often asked about this parable, sometimes with sincerity, sometimes with a little dose of cynicism, is, well, why does God need me to invest in his kingdom? Why does God need me? To help grow his kingdom. Can't God do this himself? Why, why, is it, why, why do I have to be involved? Why am I responsible? And then it kind of rolls over to other issues. You know, why am I responsible for sharing the gospel? Why am I responsible for being generous and helping the poor? Why can't God just do all this? And the answer to this question really is found in the amount that God gives to each of these servants before he leaves. It's something that, is hard, that we kind of read over. We may not quite understand. But the master gives each one of these servants a lot of money. The master is already very, very rich in this story. A talent is probably worth, it's over worth a million euros. So when he gives the servant five talents, he's giving him probably around six to seven million euros worth. Because back in the day, a talent was made of 6,000 denarii. A denarii is what a person got paid for a day's work. Of, a day's work. So we're talking about it's basically worth 6,000 days of work. It's a lot of money. He gives each one of them a lot of money. Sometimes we think, well, the one that only got one talent, that poor guy just got 10 cents to work with. Now he got over a million euros in that time. And that's the message Jesus is trying to give here. This master is rich. He doesn't need these servants to invest so that he can financially gain. It's not like he needs these servants to build up the kingdom for him. He's already done that. He already has enough riches. So then why is he including them? Well, the master is including them because this is what God does. God wants to include us in his work. 
And the result that we see for the, for the two that invest what has been given to them and they double it, they receive the same amount of praise. The exact same thing is to said to the one that doubles the five to the one that doubles the two. And the scripture says he gave them, an, gave them according to their ability. He didn't, over, he didn't put them in a place of failure. He gave them according to their ability and he knew the ability they had. And they both hear the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So what do we see really happening here? It's not the master, like I said, it's not that the master needed them to invest for him because he was a poor financial manager, didn't really know what to do, so he gave his money to his servants. He was already very wealthy. He had already had his life under control as far as finances would go. But he wanted to develop his servants. He gave to them as according to their ability. He wanted them to grow. He wanted them to have the opportunity to take something they would never be able to have on their own, this massive amount of money, and actually do something with it. He wanted them to be able to have their potential explored by giving them all the resources they could possibly need. There was nothing that would stand in their way of developing their managerial skills. In this case, these guys are all considered to be managers of money. And through their willingness to serve in the master's purpose, they both grew as people, but they also grew in future opportunities. Because he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will, I will, future, put you in charge of many things. So by investing in the master's kingdom, by being good stewards with what he's given them, they have proven that they are people that can be entrusted with more in the future comes. And the point from all this is God doesn't need us to grow or advance his kingdom, but he chooses to involve us. And this is something that is kind of, you see it all throughout the Bible. You see it from the beginning of Genesis. There's this interesting story in Genesis where God brings the animals to Adam and Adam names the animals. And in that, what, it, what the Bible is saying is that Adam was included in the creation of God. He was included by naming the animals, and if you've read the Old Testament, and even sometimes in the New Testament, when something is named, and God will often rename people, it gives a shape to their character. You know, when Abram goes from Abram to Abraham, when Jacob goes from Jacob to Israel, when Peter goes from Simon to Peter, there's a, there's a shaping in their character by being named, and Adam is being included in this shaping of creation by naming the animals. So this idea of God allowing us to be part of his creative work is found all the way in the book of Genesis. I believe this is really one of the essential things of what it means to be created in the image of God. And Jesus makes this astonishing statement, if you read the, the scripture at the bottom there, which I think we kind of read, and I know it's hard for me to get my head around, but he says this to the disciples. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. And then we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the idea that we can be involved in the kingdom work of God, and then he would say they will even do greater things than these, not that we become greater than Jesus because we have his Holy Spirit guiding us, but that we can be involved in works on this earth, which Jesus even says will be greater than what he has done, which is, it's hard to get your head around. I, I believe he's not talking about salvation but, you know, there have been people who have preached literally to more people in their lives than Jesus did. Billy Graham, for example, probably preached 
to more people, just sheer numbers, than Jesus ever did. And many, many people have had longer ministries. Jesus' ministry was rather short, three years. It was very effective, but it was short. And this involvement in the kingdom, I believe, doesn't end in this life. I believe God wants to develop humanity. You've heard me talk about this, that in the book of Revelation, it seems like in the sense, in the end, you're back at the beginning, but instead of being in a garden, we're in the city of God, but the tree of life is there. Instead of being like Adam and Eve, which seem kind of like naive when it comes to good and evil, they're like little kids, like it says, you know, they didn't even realize they were naked, like how little kids will run around, not even realize they're naked until they get to a certain age. At the end... We understand good and evil, but we have chosen to, to disregard the evil. We've chosen to have it out of our life through Jesus Christ. We're not naive at the end. But I always get a sense that at the end of the book of Revelation, it's not the end of who we are as people. It's like the end of this chapter because God is a creative God. God doesn't change. God will never stop being a creative God. And when he tells these folks, you've been faithful with a few things, I'll be, put you in charge of many things. I think it's an indication that part of the reason why we're on this journey of faith is to develop into the image of Christ. You know, we have Christ as our model. He's the one we're to keep our eyes on, not that we become Christ, but we are to become like Christ. And we'll be included in this continuous work of God. And some of you know what it's like to work with someone on a project. You know, when you both go into, when everyone goes into the project with goodwill, they're, both, they're all willing to, to really pour themselves into it. You know how, how bonding a project like that can be. So imagine what it would be like to work closely with God, to have the same goals as God, to desire the same things He desires. There's no, there's no split in your heart. You know, sin no longer has any kind of whispering dominion in any part of your life and you're working together in that, it'll be a deep bonding experience. And that's what these faithful ones hear. You've been faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Come share, come join me in your master's happiness. And so this faithful servant, I believe, will have a role in heaven that's more than just sitting on a cloud playing a harp. And I've, I've shared with you that before. You know, this role will be one that allows that person to share in the happiness of God. And God's a great big God, so his happiness is a great big happiness. And I don't think any of us in this room have any concept of what it would mean to actually share in the happiness of God, but it's going to be pretty awesome. You know, the best shared happiness that you've ever experienced, be it with, your, with a spouse or with your children or whatever, your best friend, Imagine that a billion times greater in that shared happiness of God. However, the one that buried the money is responded to in a very different way. And I think that the way he's responded to is probably the most confusing part of the parable. And so let's go through it. To the one that buried the money, he says this, The master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So the servant says, I buried it. I was afraid of you. And he says, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The lazy servant, first of all, he's not included because he chose to disqualify himself. He chose to disqualify himself through a lack of willingness to serve, and also through a lack of understanding as to who his master was. 
And so, what was entrusted to him gets taken from him because he refuses to do anything with it. And God is not a wasteful God. And he gives it to the ones who have proven their willingness to be invested in the kingdom work. And then you get this conclusion, for everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even that will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the deal with this servant? What's the story here? What's going on? First of all, why is he considered wicked? You can see why he's called lazy. Because he just takes the money and buries it and then sits around and waits for the master to come back. You can understand the lazy part. But where's the wicked part? I believe that this has to do with the idea of blasphemy. Blasphemy, in a nutshell, in the New Testament, the concept of blasphemy really is to say that which is good is evil. And to say that which is evil is good. So probably the most common, uh, commonly uh, this kind of comes to mind verse when it comes to blasphemy. People talk about the unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And man, I've had so many questions from people that are like, people are super nervous that they're going to accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit and go to hell. And what the idea of blasphemy is, remember, in a nutshell, the idea of blasphemy is to take that which is evil and call it good, and that which is good and call it evil. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to say that all the things which the Holy Spirit reveals to us about God including the character and nature of God, the character and nature of Christ, the sacrifice of the cross, the resurrection, to say all that is just stupid and even evil and foolishness. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. To say that which was good is evil. And that's why it's the unforgivable sin. If you blaspheme all the Holy Spirit has shown to you as righteous and good, and you say, no, it's all evil and I reject it, well, then you've rejected the very avenue towards salvation. It doesn't matter what good works you do around that. If you, re- if you call that which has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit evil, well, then you've blasphemed. You've, you've, called, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You've put yourself outside of the salvation of Christ. And that's what this, ma- that's what this servant does. He says something interesting to the master, and I think this has always been the intriguing part for me. He says, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, investing where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And that's when he gets replied to, you wicked, lazy servant. What I've always found intriguing about this parable is that the master does not deny the charges that this servant lays in front of him. The servant says, you harvest where you have not scattered seed. You see, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And you don't see the master go, wait a minute. I never do that. He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, he kind of just goes, well, if you knew this, then why didn't you at least take the money and investment? Invest it. If this is what you've believed about me, why didn't you at least do the very minimum? I have found this intriguing. And Jesus often does this with parables. He'll throw in this little thing that's a twist. Because you would expect if the master is all righteous and pure and all that, he would say, but this is not what I've done. You've, you've understood the wrong thing about me. But he doesn't do that. Why not? Why doesn't he do that? 
I think the reason has to do with the other parables Jesus would talk about, he would share about, and he would use the harvest as an example. Jesus often talks about the harvest. Uh, probably the most famous one is this one. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. Jesus would, would often use the idea of harvest when looking out over the world and people and refer to them as being the ones harvested. And there's other places he talks about it. Another famous parable is that it's the wheat and the tares, the, the wheat and the weeds. It says, a man went out and sowed his field with wheat, good seed, and then a, the evil neighbor comes in and, and throws out weeds into the field, and the servants go, go to the master, and they're all freaked out. They're like, well, should we just pull up the weeds? And the master says, no, let them grow together, because you might end up tearing up some of the good ones by pulling out the bad. Let them grow together, and then we'll separate them. And then he goes on, this is how it's going to be at the end. There will be this harvest, and the angels will separate out the weeds from the wheat, and the wheat will be brought to the warehouse. The weeds will be burned. I think, that, I think basically the point Jesus is making here by the master not denying this charge is because, in a sense, this is what God does in the world. Our world is a fallen world, and God has no problem with going into the fallen world, into the world where Satan is called the prince of this world, and taking people who were de destined for hell and taking them and bringing them into the kingdom of God. And being, being an international church, you guys could probably grasp this a little bit better when you think about how sometimes Christianity is talked about in some of your countries. For example, uh, in India, sometimes you know, people will say you know, Christianity came in and challenged Hindu culture, challenged Hindu traditions, and even stopped certain practices. And sometimes people resent that. They'll say this is an example of spiritual colonialism, that Christianity came in and took over or eradicated certain aspects of culture. Many of you from African nations have probably heard the same thing, that Christianity came in, especially if someone is like really anti-Christian and they want to kind of get back to their, what they feel like is their, their ancestral roots. Christianity came in and took over certain thing, aspects of culture, kicked out certain aspects of culture, spiritually colonized us and oppressed the, the aspects of our culture which Christianity didn't agree with. And even in the West, today we hear about this. In the West, people say, oh, Christianity. The West wants to redefine marriage. They want to redefine love. They want to redefine even the whole concept of sin. And we'll say there is no sin at all. And they will say Christianity comes in and, and takes these definitions. And they find that as being evil, as being oppressive, as being mean, instead of it being redemptive. And they will say then, the gospel is an enemy to my culture. Just like the servant says to the master, well, you gather from where you haven't sown, and you've taken the harvest in places where you didn't, you didn't put the seed. And the, and the servant sees the master as being evil for doing this. You're taking a harvest that isn't yours. And the world sometimes says to God, you're taking a harvest which isn't yours. This is our culture. These are our values. How dare you come in, Jesus, and tell us to redefine love? How dare you come in and tell us how to redefine marriage? Because Christianity does redefine marriage. It redefines marriage as being an illustration of God's love for the church, Christ's love for the church, the church's love for Christ. 
How dare you do these things? And God's response is what? I do dare. I do dare. I take it. You bet I do. I go in there because I love these folks. I'm willing to die for these folks. I will upturn parts of culture which are sin. I will say we should eradicate parts of culture which are not glorifying to God. God says, like the master says, you know this all, if you know this about me, why are you trying to fight me? And this is why he's called wicked. Because he calls the good that the master is doing evil. And just to keep that in mind, there's a lot of blasphemers in the world. You just go onto YouTube and you find all these folks that think they're so clever coming up with some reason why Christianity should be disregarded as, you'll hear these terms, spiritual colonialism, or you'll hear uh, cultural appropriation or eradication. They'll come up with all these things. And it's like, yeah, sure, Christianity does take over things. Christianity took over Christmas. You know, Christmas was, that whole kind of season was a pagan holiday. Christianity took it over and said, you know what, we're just going to take that, redefine it, and talk about that's going to be the day we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And even today in the church, people go, oh, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas. Christianity takes over stuff. It does. It took over baptism. Baptism was a, a cultural practice by the Jews to cleanse themselves when they had been made unclean either by being around a dead body or a woman going through a menstrual cycle. Christianity took that concept and said, now it means being baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it means spiritual cleansing. Now it means uh, a change, a transformation that takes place of being reborn. It redefined it. Christianity redefined marriage. Marriage used to be basically kind of a social contract. Marriage existed as a thing before Christianity, and Christianity redefines it. It says, yep, we're going to redefine that. Instead of it being just a social contract, it's an illustration of Christ's love for the church, the church's love for Christ, and as a result, as Christians, our marriage is to be lived out in a different way than the way the rest of the world defines marriage. Christianity takes over and redefines things all the time. It doesn't just take them over and redefine them. It redeems them. It gives them a meaning that, is, that was always meant to have. It gives it a meaning that removes it from all the kind of weirdness that humanity puts around institutions and ideas. It redeems it, makes it something new, gives it new life. We do, Christianity does this all the time. Is that a bad thing? Do we expect that Christ would come and die upon the cross and then just kind of leave the world the way it is? Of course not. Unfortunately, the church has a tendency to really not want to transform culture. The church, we have a tendency to kind of want to sit in a place that is safe, not make too much of a fuss. But Christ came to run counter of culture, not just because he, he dislikes culture, but to redeem humanity. Because our ideas, our cultural ideas, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, it doesn't matter what country you're from, anything that involves the human input and the human ideas in order to shape ideas is going to have within it sin. It's just the way, it's the way it is. You can't have a group of sinful people come up with an idea and a way of life and not have sin be involved in it. And so, yeah, Jesus comes to bring in the harvest. 
He comes to steal from the prince of this world, Satan, the souls which Satan very greedily wants to hang on to. Jesus says, I'm just going to take that, and I'm going to take that, and I bought it with my blood, so there's nothing you can do about it. So ask yourself then, are you living with readiness? Are you using your resources? Are you challenging the world around you in any way, shape, or form? Does the way you live challenge the beliefs and the values of people who are close to you, like your family members who may not be believers or who may be nominal believers? Do they see anything in you that sets you apart as different? Do they see the things that you invest in as, a, as an indication of what you truly love, where you're truly invested in, where your heart is? How do you want to spend eternity? Do you want to spend it engaged with God? engaged with his purposes, whatever those are going to be. I can't tell you what they're going to be, but I think they'll be pretty awesome to be part of it. And I mean the word awesome there in its proper sense. Do you want to be engaged with God or do you want to be separated from God and his purposes? Because right now what he's doing is he's trying to develop you into the person that is more and more like Christ. Not that we ever become Christ, but we become like Christ. I've often shared, you know, I think it's kind of uh, interesting in the German language, you know, when you have this chin next, after something that it means it's small, like bro chin, me chin, you know, we're like Christians, we're little Christ, and that's literally what it's supposed to mean, we're little Christs, to be a Christian. And he wants us to value what he values, to love what he loves, to do as he does, and Jesus says that those who do what I do... Those who follow me will do as I do, and they will even do greater things than these. This is what it means to live in readiness. This is what it means to live using our resources for the sake of the kingdom. And even if Christ doesn't return in our lifetime, we are still being developed into that person which will be said, and this is my greatest wish, that will be said of me, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now you'll be put in charge of more. Not because I want more, but I want to be in that close relationship with God. What he wants, I want. What he does, I want to be part of. This is how I want to spend eternity. How do you want to spend it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these stories that you told, these parables. And Lord, we, uh, we know that we see it probably, I know I do, see myself in all of these servants, the ones that you're happy with, and even in the, the lazy and wicked one, not so much the wicked part, but certainly the lazy part at times. And Father, I just pray that you would guide us all in having a perspective that goes beyond this life. It's so easy for us just to look at what's right in front of us all the time and just kind of settle into that place as this is the way it is, and it's never really going to change, and this is the only thing that's important. Help us to have that deep, wider perspective. Like the servants that went out and doubled it. They didn't know when the master was going to return. They really didn't know, uh, didn't have a whole lot of instruction other than just take this and use it, make something of it. Sometimes, Lord, we feel like we're kind of flailing around. We don't really know exactly what's going on around us. We don't know exactly what your plan is. We certainly don't know when you're returning. But when you return, may we be found ready. May we, may, may we be found in that place of being told, well done good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. Now I'll put you in charge of many.
And Lord, guard our hearts and guard our thoughts, and especially in this world around us where there's so much input that comes into our lives now through social media, through uh, television, through the computer, through all kinds of media that comes in. There's so many times we will hear opinions which are blasphemous, those things that, those times when people call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. And may you, through your spirit, give us clarity to understand so that we don't become influenced and find ourselves in the place of the blasphemer. Help us to cling to that which you have told us is good. And by that, may we be more and more like you, growing in your image. We thank you for the hope that we have of a future and look forward to it eagerly. God bless us and guide us as we are given responsibility for what what we have in front of us right now to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.